Hello and welcome to Farmerama. First up this month, we hear about the power of growing spaces to provide sanctuary to some of the most vulnerable people in our society. Then, we head across the pond to Maine, where we tap into the knowledge of an organic farming legend and hear what has inspired him over his 50 years in farming. Next, we hop over to the West Coast to talk biodynamics and wine at scale. And we end with a few words of farewell from our resident market gardener. We start with a story that friend of the show Joy Rose sent in over a year ago. We have to confess we thought we'd lost the recording, but we uncovered it again a few weeks ago and we're really pleased to be able to share it. Ben Margolis and Sophie Antonelli tell us about Gardens of Sanctuary, a network of green spaces across the UK where asylum seekers and refugees can become co-creators of community gardens and environmental projects. The recording was made just as the initiative was getting started, and it's now well underway. Even so, it's as pertinent as ever. My name is Ben Margolis from The Grange in Norfolk. And my name is Sophie Antonelli from the Federation of City Farms and Community Gardens. The Grange is a 10-acre smallholding in West Norfolk, and for the last six, seven years there, my wife and I have been welcoming refugees and asylum seekers onto the site. Uh, There are currently about 30,000 people in the UK seeking asylum, and during that process, people aren't allowed to work. And what we've found through some research that we've been doing recently and through the literature review is that the people's mental health deteriorates significantly, both through experiences they've had at home, the journey to the UK, but also because of the nature of life in the UK and the asylum system. And that gardens and growing spaces and farms and allotments have an amazing potential to offer incredible therapeutic opportunities for asylum seekers and refugees, but also for them to be able to uh, share some of the skills that they bring with them from their home countries, uh, to meet people in the local area, to integrate with the local community. So we've been doing this for some years at the Grange, but we felt like we wanted to look at how we could support other growing spaces all over the UK to welcome refugees and asylum seekers who might be in their areas onto their farms and onto their allotments. So we partnered with the Federation of City Farms and Community Gardens and with the Permaculture Association and also the City of Sanctuary Network and got some funding to allow us to do some research to explore it more. And then we're going to bring out a report and we're hoping then to be able to support all sorts of growers around the UK to welcome asylum seekers onto their farm. And certainly from a kind of federation perspective, we're really aware. Um, we've got you know members all over the UK, you know, from kind of farms down to very traditional city farms and community gardens. There's a real desire to work with refugees and asylum seekers, particularly in the last couple of years. So the process that we've been going through is one of research. So we've had um, a couple of different surveys out um, over the last couple of months. So we've had um, probably 180, 190 responses to those mostly from uh, growing groups talking about whether they are or aren't working with refugees and asylum seekers already, how that's been going, some of the problems that they might have had, things like um, working with people who are very traumatised, but also just lack of training, even not knowing how to engage refugees and asylum seekers in the first place. So that's been really useful. Um, Ben's also been doing some research looking at the academic literature, so the the evidence for the benefits of um, kind of growing within like a community context and how that can bring um, therapeutic benefits just to people generally, but also specifically to people who've kind of come to this country um, seeking sanctuary. Um, 
So that's been really, really helpful. And we're using that to put together what we hope will be kind of a second phase. Um, and we'll be using all of that evidence to look for um, funding that would help us put together effectively like a package of training so that we can work, as Ben said, with groups all across the country and help and support them to work with people within their communities that they might not even be aware of that potentially are very marginalised and quite traumatised and bring them into these growing spaces. Um, and yeah do all of the wonderful things that they're already doing but working with an even more diverse group of people mm. so maybe just to explore a little bit more about why gardens can become places of sanctuary particularly for asylum seekers and what that looks like in practice and the example of the, the project that i've been working on now for several years at the grange is it's changed over time and we've learned a lot over time Initially, we just had residential groups. We're fortunate that we can host up to 16 people at a time. And we began to host um, sometimes 12, 13, 14 asylum seekers, normally for a week or so at a time on just a therapeutic retreat. It was just get out in the countryside, enjoy. And a lot of the groups we worked with in Norwich, a lot of the asylum seekers said they wanted to be able to come more regularly. So we started welcoming them on our volunteer days, which happen every Wednesday. So now on a Wednesday at the Grange, we have... 10, between 10 and 20 local volunteers and between 5 and 10 asylum seekers. And that's been really powerful. And I think one of the things that we've learned is that there's, there's no expectation on anyone, particularly on asylum seekers, to work. There's always jobs to do, and they know that if they want to weed, they can weed, and if they want to sow seeds, they can sow seeds. But they also know that if they just need to relax, they can relax, because their lives are so uncertain and challenging anyway. And what comes out of that is loads of just ad hoc lovely conversations with people from the local area, which has really made a massive difference in how people in our area, in, in rural Norfolk, perceive asylum seekers. So the level of community understanding has grown massively and a lot of prejudices, I think, have helped to overcome. The other thing that we've learned through that is give people a chance to share their own skills rather than just expect people to come onto your site and carry out the jobs you need and the impact is much greater so we we mainly do gardening but we also do woodwork and pottery and all sorts of other things and we found that through those skills people actually show people come with those skills and the amount of confidence they gain from having the opportunity to do that and then to share that skill with other people is really extraordinary. We've got working with psychotherapists who tell us they, they've worked with people for years and who are still stuck in a, a traumatic space. But having the opportunity to be out in a safe place, doesn't have to be in the countryside, it could be in an urban area, but in an open space, in a garden, practicing skills that they maybe know from their childhood from a safer time is therapeutically extraordinarily beneficial. But it has to be set up in the right way. I think that's really key. I think working with partners who understand uh, the, the asylum system, who understand the trauma that asylum seekers have been through, and making sure that volunteers are, are trained and that any staff in the project are trained is super important. And that's what we're hoping is one of the things that the Gardens of Sanctuary project can offer is that training and that support to help people set up these projects in the right way. The other thing that I would say is I would really encourage groups to start making contact with um, local refugee and asylum organisations um, that would be operating in their area. You know, um, the partnerships between them can be really key um, and also there would be greater potential to work together potentially on some funding bids and those organisations mm -hmm. might have a better um, awareness of what funding there might be out there to work with that particular group of people. So definitely kind of get out there and, and, and meet those organisations and start building those relationships. And at the moment, we're, we're really open to people becoming involved. 
So if there are people who listen to this who want to find out more, the best place to go at the moment is through the City of Sanctuary website, cityofsanctuary.org forward slash gardens, and you'll find our contact details and some information, and you can register your interest on there. And we encourage people to get in touch and contact us, and we can follow up and hopefully work with more people. Rebel Kitchen are a member of 1% for the planet. This means they donate 1% of their sales, not just their profits, to partners contributing to the planet. And it's through this commitment that they're helping to support us to share knowledge within the farming community and to spread the word to many more farmers and growers. Elliot Coleman is an organic farming legend. He has been farming at Four Season Farm in Maine for over 50 years, and his book, The New Organic Grower, is a seminal text for organic farmers, especially market gardeners. Yeah, when I first learned about organic farming, I had been spending all of my spare time as a uh, semi-pro adventurer. I used to go on mountaineering expeditions. I was a passionate rock climber. I used to race whitewater kayaks, ski race. And one day, I think it was in my mid-twenties, I read a book about small farming and I'd been thinking I should have something more socially redeeming in my future than the next mountain. And it made it sound like an adventure, especially because I was told that organic farming was absolutely impossible, that you couldn't grow food without poisons and all these other things. And if you've been a rock climber, you've spent your life doing the impossible. So I said, okay, let's go for this. Um, uh, the book I read was by a, a couple of American back to the landers, Scott and Helen Nearing. And I got to know them and uh, we got along well and they sold me the back half of their farm for what they'd paid for it 20 years ago. But that sounds better than it is because it was all forest. And so we had to cut down the trees and dig out the stumps and roll out rocks. And we started with about two inches of, of uh, very poor, very acid topsoil. But the advantage of difficulties is that you learn so much overcoming them. And it was probably the best education I could possibly have had in uh, soil fertility and what makes the soil more fertile and how you can get there for the least cost and so forth. And so that was the start of where we learned that you don't buy uh, inputs because uh, especially organic inputs like soybean meal or bone meal are really uh, expensive. You figure out what you can find locally that will do that and, uh, and make that part of uh, your farming system. Of uh, 40 acres I have, we've finally cleared 14 of them and we have about two and a half of that in intensive vegetables with uh, greenhouses and uh, and despite our climate, I mean, there's about three feet of snow on the ground back home as I speak, uh, we produce year-round and in the winter, principally in unheated greenhouses, by taking advantage of the fact that all of the hardy crops like spinach and, uh, and Swiss chard and, and scallions and the Asian greens can freeze and not mind it. And so we, uh, we figured out a very simple system. and. Uh, that's been the best part of it because that was the next impossible. Okay, maybe you can do it in the summer, you can't do it in the winter. No, we can do it in the winter too. 
I tell people that a lot of the changes we make on the farm or a lot of the innovation comes from the fact that I think I hide the fact from myself that I'm basically lazy. And so whenever I'm doing a job, if it is slightly unpleasant, I'm thinking, how can I make this more efficient? How can we do this better? How can we not run into the same uh, snag next year that we ran into this year? And so it's really a continual process of, I guess, paying attention to detail uh, to say, okay, maybe we could change this. Oh, wait a minute. No, if we change that, then that'll happen. Okay, so we better go in the other direction. And it's a wonderful mind game. That's the best part of it. And uh, I, it's the type of mind game that I've always uh, enjoyed. Because the thing I tell people about when you're climbing, the dullest part is standing on top. The fun part was trying to figure out how to get there. And so the nice thing about small farming is it is a continual trying to figure out how to get there. We, uh, we have a few uh, tree fruits, uh, apples, and, and some uh, uh, peaches, but basically we're a, a vegetable farm. But we also uh, have uh, 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 chickens for eggs. And eggs are a wonderful complement to a vegetable farm because it's almost a, a full diet that way. You get your protein and your veggies. Uh, and the chickens, though, graze on what you would call a, a lay rotation, where we've put our land for a couple of years into a, a grass a legume pasture. And then the following year, that land is in crops. The previous crop land gets sown down to grass pasture, and the chickens graze it. And this has been a wonderful way to have uh, what I call the self-fed farm with no need other than the feed I'm bringing in for the chickens to bring in uh, uh, anything from outside. If anybody who's farmed has obviously run into uh, difficulties, uh, there are times uh, we had so little resources at the start. Uh, my farm was being run by a 1948 Willys Jeep, which was left over from the Second World War, which I bought very, very used. And I had a four-horsepower walk-behind uh, rototiller. Well, the engine on the uh, Jeep went out once. And when you're that close to the edge economically, then you really, that was, that was a tough time. We managed to get through that. And then a neighbor who decided that we were uh, uh, not his cup of tea uh, slashed the tires on my cheap ones. You know, there's always things like that. But um, I actually eventually made friends with him, which was the easiest way to deal with something like that. He apologized. But, you know, there are always difficulties and you think, oh my gosh, how are we going to get by this? But human beings are wonderful. We have wonderful neighbors. We help our neighbors. They help us. And uh, if you live in a uh, rural community, there is a spirit in the rural communities that I don't know if it exists in cities because I've never lived in cities, but there's a spirit in rural communities where everybody understands that we are there because the, the returns from this lifestyle are so fantastic and that if we want to continue it, we need to help each other at every opportunity. Most of the light bulb moments, I would say, come or came for us from the, the whole idea of, and it was the best stuff I read when I started reading about organic farming, 
The whole idea that if you grow plants correctly, you won't have pests. And uh, we would see that that worked fantastically, but then there would be times when we weren't aware that we had done something wrong and there would be pests. So we used to do trials and we would take a field and uh, prepare half of it one way and half of it the other way and plant the same crop in it. And just time after time, there would be pests on one half and no pests on the other half. I mean, uh, the sad thing about this is that uh, all the years I've been on my farm, and I've been there since 1968, no uh, professor of entomology from the nearby university has ever bothered to come down and see what's happening. I mean, this it's really sad. And I think they don't want to find out that they have been wrong their whole career. I mean, I suppose that's pretty discouraging. <laughs> if you're about to retire, you find out you've been wrong about these things. But the balance between what you've done to prepare the soil correctly and all the delightful biological life in the soil and the effect that has inducing resistance in the crops is finally now being researched. Uh, and it was just stuff we intuited back then. But those were the light bulb moments when we'd say, oh my gosh, look, the left-hand side of that field has pests, the right-hand side doesn't. This really does work, and it did. We joke about our trials. We refer to ourselves as the National Empirical Research Station because we just try things and see if it works. And very often we would have done trials, and it takes a lot of effort. So this is sort of kids don't do this at home if you don't have your farm together. But, uh, and then suddenly we would have run out of uh, carrots at the, the farm shop, and I'd rush over there and pull carrots, and so we never got to, to uh, uh, to detail it correctly. But you can learn a lot just by looking around and, and paying attention every day. And uh, once you've been farming, I would say at least three years, if you really keep your eyes open, you're gonna notice a lot of more stuff than you ever would have imagined at the start. I think I'm a suspicious old hippie and I see a lot of the uh, uh, interest in no-till the research is coming from research done by the chemical companies to justify farmers pouring on herbicides. And if you look at it carefully, it is biased in favor of telling you not to till because they bias their research by only checking the organic matter in the top two inches of the soil where it was higher under no-till. If you actually check the organic matter in the rest of the soil, standard organic farming beats no-till for carbon capture and everything. So like, that's one thing there I don't think that we need to, to debate. Um, but you know, if you look at the future of the world, you want to look at it, let's say, for the next hundred years, the only system of agriculture that is going to continue to feed mankind into the future is organic farming, a no-input organic farming, an organic farming that is understanding how much fertility can come from green manures, cover crops, crop rotation, mixed livestock, et cetera, et cetera. And so the future, they're all gonna be farming our way or they aren't gonna be eating. They may not understand that because if you're running an input system and your inputs run out, you're over and done with. And after a while, human beings are going to realize that the type of farming that has been talked about uh, 
since the 40s and all those wonderful old uh, books I read when I started out that were all uh, published by Faber and Faber. I mean, so much of my knowledge background came from the British Isles and, and the books that, that came out of the movement in those days. Um, they're going to realize that it didn't have to be purist in the way organic sometimes gets into purist, like how many beneficial bacteria can dance on the tines of a manure fork or something like that. But the basic idea that you are working with the, the natural world and the soil biology and treating it correctly in order to keep food production going forever, I guarantee you that's the way everybody's going to be farming. I've been designing uh, tools for the type of stuff we do. I've been working on this for years. And one conclusion that I've come to is that there is nothing new in agriculture. I'll come up with an idea for a twist on a tool, and if I research it enough, I'll find out that somebody came up with that uh, 40 years ago and we've never heard of the, uh, this person. So it's really hard to have an overall uh, thing for the farming community. The thing I tell young people if they ask me is pay attention to detail, and that's good uh, information in any business. It's interesting to hear Elliot talk about organic farming because his definition of organics as working with the natural world and soil biology is actually a form of practice being adopted by many other farmers who don't identify as organic. Um, I'd say this is the guiding principle behind regenerative agriculture. And what's so exciting is that many conventional farmers are rethinking their farming system, guided by soil health and working with the natural world. Kind of like Fred Price, who you heard from back in uh, January's episode. If you are in the UK and interested in learning more about this approach, then the Groundswell Conference in late June is a brilliant event to find out more. Rudy Marchese is President and Chief Viticulturalist at Montenor Estate where they have 240 acres of vineyards, one of the largest biodynamic vineyards in the Willamette Valley in Oregon. Rudy was responsible for converting the whole estate to biodynamic methods over 10 years ago, and he's a globally respected biodynamic wine grower. The estate is beautiful with large lakes, trees, and wildflower meadows. We love the way Rudy describes biodynamic farming as, quote, an approach to plant and land care that combines novel techniques of building up healthy soil with a renewed awareness of all the forces at work in the farm organism, among and between the soil, plants, animals, and humans, as well as the cosmos itself. Here, Rudy shares some tips for doing biodynamics on a larger scale. Hi, I'm Rudy Marchese from Montanor State in the Willamette Valley of Oregon. Okay, so we have 200 plus acres of wine grapes here, predominantly Pinot Noir and some cool, cool climate whites. And um, they range anywhere from 35 to 10 years in age. And since 2003, we started, uh, at, in 2003, we started 
the conversion from conventional farming to organic and biodynamic, we ceased the use of herbicides, started working with opening up the soil and getting some cover crops in and using biodynamic preparations uh, in all ways we could to uh, bring some life back to the farm. I can't do all this work myself. Um, I have a crew and a team that works with me. So I think the first thing you need to do is to get those that work with you on board and understanding at least the basics of your goal and what the agenda will be in terms of changes in practices. And for the most part, it's really uh, the elimination of all the toxics and the addition of uh, practices such as building and applying compost, um, putting on the uh, the additional sprays, be it biodynamic sprays or, or uh, plant teas that will go in the canopies, things like that. But you need everyone to kind of buy into the thought process and, uh, and embrace it. And then after that, it's the actual mechanics of it, which is, in a way, the easiest thing. Um, you know, if you're going to stir a biodynamic preparation for 200 acres, unless you have a team of people with oars spinning really rapidly, you need to do it mechanically or with a flow form or something like that. So you find the best way that works for you on your site and, um, and just build the machinery or buy the machinery so that you can do this stirring and do it properly. Um, and the same thing with... Um, with the compost, you know, building bigger compost piles isn't so hard. It just requires uh, bigger pieces of machinery. We were, we just bought an old backhoe uh, that had a big bucket loader, and we use that, and it's just dedicated for our compost turning and building, and and then uh, it's a matter of having um, compost spreaders, and you can you can uh, utilize. Um, manure spreaders or you can you can uh, adapt a manure spreader to compost and so it's basically just getting a little bit bigger equipment and having the will to do it so scaling up from my mind is not so hard um, I think there's a, a feeling among some farmers that uh, you have to do everything by hand and it has to be small and intimate um, and certainly that's a wonderful way to farm, but if you need to have a bigger farm and, uh, and operate it, it, it can be done. And it can be done in a way that you don't lose your sensitivity and you don't lose the effectiveness of the treatments. Because we needed uh, a few hundred gallons of, of spray at a time, so we built uh, a spraying uh, setup with three tanks where we were a stirring setup with three tanks that were in tandem with copper coated paddles that would stir and create the vortex in the sprays. And from everything I had read and talked with people about, you want to avoid having uh, any electromagnetic fields around the spray material um, and the stir, stirring area. So what we did is we got a, the parts off of an old um, street sweeper that was a, a gas engine with a big hydraulic motor pump and set that off to the side and then piped the hydraulic fluids up to a hydraulic motor on top of the tanks that does all the stirring for us. And one thing I was concerned about, I didn't want a machine that you would just turn it on and walk away and come back an hour later. Uh, I wanted something where some whoever was doing it was involved in the back and forth of creating the vortex and the chaos and the reverse vortex, just as if 
one we're stirring it by hand. So we made it manually operated where you have to push a lever one way to go clockwise and then pull it back the other way to go counterclockwise. So someone is almost forced to watch the creation of the vortex and then make sure that the chaos in the reversing is, is, is adequate and then the reversal vortex, and then go back again. So it kind of puts the intention of the operator into the process. But we're still stirring 300 gallons of, of, um, of biodynamic preparation at a time. So it works on that scale for us. It's the most highly scrutinized agricultural product for quality, I think, that there is. And there are certain very many, many variations, and there's uh, just untold number of publications and broadcasts and whatnot about the quality and character of wine. So it's, it's a product where the quality and character are, are paramount in the success of the person that's producing it. And I think it's an interesting barometer of the, the effectiveness of these biodynamic practices because what we have seen is a, is a real dramatic transformation in not only the quality, but the character and the expressiveness of our wines relative to this farm where they're grown. And I think that speaks to kind of the nature of this, the effect of, of not only biodynamics, but most sustainable practices where you're really engaging the farm into the process rather than just utilizing the soil to hold up a plant and pumping it full of fertilizers and things. You're engaging the entire uh, uh, biology, the entire population of the environment into producing this product. And it really shows in the quality and, and the character of the place is reflected, especially in a glass of wine that's grown in this way on a particular site. So I think um, for me, it's very profound, and the transformation here over the last 15-plus years has, has been remarkable, and um, I'd like to share that. This month's show was made by Joe Barrett, Katie Revel, and myself, Abby Rose. We had help with editing from Louis Hudson and Susie McCarthy. Thanks to Joy Rose for sending in the recording about Gardens of Sanctuary, and to Chelsea Green for putting us in touch with Elliot Coleman. Community support is handled by Annie Landless, Eliza Jenkins, and Olivia Oldham. And our theme music is by Owen Barrett. We're delighted to be nominated for a Bullseye Award at this year's British Podcast Awards. The Bullseye Award honors the podcasts producing exceptional listening experiences for niche audiences and those underrepresented in other British media. We'll let you know how we get on next month. In the meantime, you can also vote for us in the Listener's Choice Award. Just go to britishpodcastawards.com forward slash vote and type in Farmerama. It takes less than a minute. And voting closes on the 15th of May. And while you're at it, if you enjoy the show and want to help us out, rating and reviewing us on iTunes really makes a difference and helps more people discover this work. We'll leave you with a message from Joel Rodker, who's saying goodbye to Harvest Barn Market Garden. We've been following him for the past year through the highs and lows of setting up a market garden. Thank you, Joel, for taking us with you on that journey and all the very best. We're looking forward to following your future endeavours. And we'll see you next month. Toodaloo!
Hello Farmerama, good afternoon. Um, I haven't recorded anything for a while, it's been a busy few months. I'd like you to imagine it's the 6th of March, I'm packing up a long wheelbase hire van, sandbags, seed compost, irrigation equipment, ground cover, environmesh, tools, seed trays, BCS tractor. The van is pretty much full to the brim. My relationship with the landlord at Harvest Barn Farm Shop has come to an end. I won't go into the details because that would be unfair without all three of us being present. But let's just say we didn't quite see eye to eye and it wasn't the right place for me. I learned a lot and I've been badly stung I guess but a new chapter has opened. To find out about that you'll have to listen to the next episode. For now, let's just say this has been a roller coaster year. It hasn't really been harder than I expected because I didn't go into this naive. I knew it was going to be bloody hard, and I think I've experienced a good share of challenges. Not more, not less than what I imagined might happen, although there have been quite a few things that weren't predicted. But um, I guess those are the kind of things that happen to everyone when they're starting a new business or in farming um, there are always going to be things that you don't expect but despite all those difficulties and painful lessons I haven't been put off and I'm still committed to market gardening to agroecological farming to community building to spreading awareness of the benefits of small-scale farming to spreading manure to building soil to being outside to helping wildlife to promoting locally grown seasonal organic food so with all those things in mind i will continue and hopefully see you soon thanks for listening everyone bye I've just come into the poly tunnel and I'm taking down a bench and tying up tomato strings and it's absolutely pouring and the wind is blowing. It's, I think it's going to be even too loud in here to record anything. The rain is gusting past the poly tunnel. Um, so luckily I'm inside. I think this could be an omen that it's time to leave this godforsaken place in the fens. Uh, I think it's time for a cup of tea, a last little bit of tidying up and then back to my nice warm cosy flat in Norwich. Goodbye!